You're listening to Mud-Spattered Philosophy, an attempt to salvage academic thought from too much seriousness. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. This is Elisa Torres. I am a grad student in the Institute of Philosophic Studies at the University of Dallas. And joining us today for our first installment of the Mud-Spattered Philosophy podcast we have with us... Alexis von Smikowski. I am also a grad student at the Institute for Philosophic Studies. And I'm boy Alex. (laughs) Alex Neff is my name. I'm also part of the uh, Institute of Philosophic Studies, also known as the IPS, or IPS. No, it's not known as IPS. Uh, That would be cool. As of today. We do that with acronyms sometimes, but no. So the IPS, Institute of Philosophic Studies, uh, I am pursuing my doctorate in philosophy in the doctoral program, which IPS is, at the University of Dallas. (laughs) There Sorry, you that was weird syntax. That's all right. Okay. All three of us here uh, at this table are in the doctoral program at UD, as we have noted, which is interdisciplinary. So the way it works is there are three concentrations within the Institute of Philosophic Studies, philosophy, literature, and politics. Each semester, for a total of six semesters, all three disciplines take a core class together. The classes try to cover the greatest hits of Western civilization, from Plato and Aristotle through Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. But to be clear, we are not representing the university. We just so happened to be here studying together and thought, let's start a podcast based off of the conversations we are already having with each other. And today's conversation will basically be an attempt to articulate our intentions for this podcast. And in assisting us today with this daunting task, we'll be looking at an excerpt from Plato's Republic, as well as an essay from Wendell Berry entitled The Loss of the University. But before we go any further, uh, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves to our listeners. Alex Neff, you already kind of gave us a little uh, preview as to what you're doing here, but uh, why don't you go ahead and give us your background? Some more preview? Yeah. (laughs) Previous preview? A background check, preferably. Oh, background check. Well, how many times have you been? Before I, I was a grad student, I wasn't. Wow. (laughs) And I am able to say things like that because when I was an undergraduate, I took a class called Logic (laughs) as part of uh, achieving um, my degree in philosophy. That's not the only degree. I was a double major in philosophy and psychology. I actually started out um, psychology and I discovered later that I was doing that because I wanted to investigate the things that I do now. But I really didn't know about philosophy in a formal way. And so when I took my intro class, I was like, I was like, dang it, I should have picked this, but I already started on this other one. But I just kept filling up as many gaps I had in my schedule with philosophy classes to the point that it was like, it would have been absurd if I didn't just get the major because I was like Mm. over, I was just like trying to do philosophy really, but also finishing my psych degree, which I'm glad I did. But I learned all those lacunas. Lacunas. Lacuna matata. Sorry, it's just a good word. It's a wonderful I, phrase. I <laughs> it's a wonderful term. I lacuna try to, matata. I try to use the word lacuna term. as often as possible. Okay, so anyhow, so I, in short, I got my degree in philosophy and in psychology at Houston Baptist University. And um, I guess that was about five or six years ago that I finished that. And um, here I am working towards my doctorate. In philosophy. In philosophy. That's your concentration. That's my concentration. Excellent. Mm-hmm. And right now you're done with coursework and are just kind of wrapping up the final threads. 
Yeah, Whereas, we might call them final threads. <laughs> it feels like I'm still in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but that's that's true. In, in an official sense, I am through with the course. We're going to have to step foot in the classroom, which is actually a sad thing. It turns out. I mean, I can. I can right. go sit in on classes, which is actually a sad thing that I don't do that by choice. I know. But I, I mean, it is true here at our community, though, that we are the best classes seem to be the unofficial conversations that we have with each other. Exactly. Um, just at gatherings and in between classes and whenever people are on campus or studying at the library. Yeah, so I am hopefully going to get my dissertation approved. We're not going to get into my dissertation topic right now. That we get That's a whole way other podcast. Exactly. Well, you're, you're the senior among us and can uh, provide us with all sorts of wisdom because Alexis and I just started the program. That's, that's right, my dear. <laughs> I'll teach you some philosophy. No. Um, that's how we're going to sound. Thanks. Like I don't think the seniority podcast. is. It's it's not going to be apparent, you know. But it's it's true that I'm a little further along than than these guys. But this is about philosophy, and okay, most most academic philosophers are like very serious about the academic pedigree and the business side of it, and they should be. That's an important part of life. But I still like to retain the sense that I don't. That philosophy isn't a, it's not an institution, it's not a, it's not a class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the institutional avenue which the person who wants to know what is this thing right. that people called, not only called philosophy, but lived something called philosophy. The way uh, was. Oh, yes. And is, right? Maybe some people don't still think it is. They really do. So a lot of people do think it was. That's why a lot of people study the history of philosophy, for instance, which is not. Right. I'm interested in the history of philosophy, but that's kind of become a con- confused, common confusion now. Right. As opposed to studying history philosophically. Sure. If you're going to study history, if you're going to study history, right. Right. Then you ph- philosophically, but or, or studying that's at not least really the past philosophically, right. or seeing seeing the authors within history as a continuum. And we can enter into that conversation yes. philosophically, as opposed to just seeing authors as tied down to their particular right. times right. and treating their particular thought as as particular to their time, and therefore just another artifact of history. That's right, exactly. So you know, in historicism is what that would be. Historicism. Maybe. A couple but extra premises added on there. Before we get too far, too, too ahead of ourselves. Yeah, no isms let's, yet. Uh, we're, we're too early in the game for isms. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, Alexis-ism is something we can talk wait, about Wait, I now. didn't get to give my philosophical theory of history. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to. Okay, well, we should get back to that at some point because Wendell Berry does talk about this. Anyway, but Alexis over here. Hey, Alexis. Also. Hi. Was once not a grad student. I also was once not a grad student. I once was not even a student. That's as hard as that is that's to, hard believe. to believe. Really? Yes. Hmm. Yes. For about you know four years there. Oh yeah, childhood. Yeah, that yeah, thing yeah, yeah. does. That's a weird thing. Talking, walking, yeah. feeding myself. Anyway, um, <laughs> I got my bachelor's arts and English at Belmont Abbey College. I too wasn't necessarily always in the major I ended up in. I was a pre-law major once, um, and then switched over to English in my sophomore year, and switched again because I am no longer, I'm not, I'm not here for English at the uh, University of Dallas. I am here to study politics, so I'm the uh, 
odd man out, as it were, uh, amongst these two philosophers over here, but we'll see if we can keep them a little practical. <laughs> keep it concrete. As we've said, probably that is less so here at a school like UD, where we have a explicitly interdisciplinary program. Right, absolutely. Um, which admits that you don't really know philosophy uh, well, if you don't know political philosophy and you don't right. really know political science well, if you don't know political philosophy and you don't know political philosophy well, if you don't know philosophy generally speaking, right. which Absolutely. is and literature. metaphysics and the whole gambit, and of course if you don't live it, it all means squat. Exactly. Right. Most people don't like to add that one. But no. That's <laughs> true. But you have to recognize that it's all studying the human person, so it's all interconnected. Exactly. Yes. And I'm not going to give you my history of philosophy because we're going to go back to Elisa. <laughs> Elisaism. So I also got my bachelor's degree from Belmont Abbey College with Alexis. We graduated the same year. And I started out in theology and did end up getting a degree in theology, but also added on a couple of other things. You might say I was overly ambitious. I'm going to say what those what are. Or I don't know what you would call it. But yeah, so... To skip over the fact that you also have a degree in English? Right. So I, so I also have a degree in English. Oh, yeah, that old thing. Yeah. Uh, and then... I got my minors in political philosophy, Christianity and culture, and medieval studies. But it was one of those things that you can kind of take one class and it counts for a couple of different things, you know? So I really, really stretched it. As Did you get as minors or minor headaches? I missed that. You know. Oh, both. <laughs> Definitely. It's a lot of work. So you were one of these kids that, like, the, the normal average student probably feels a little, a little bit intimidated. Bye. What? I don't. No. I don't. I don't know. You were there. You were there, so you can say. But I mean, it sounds like you were just killing it, high fiving the professors. No, no, no. I I'd like to imagine myself as just like a, a kid in a candy store. That's that's really what I felt like. Where I just wanted I just wanted to fill my whole basket up with nice with all sorts Junk. of yummy yummy things. Yeah, soul. that's awesome. That's how I saw it. Mm-hmm. So I had a little break period before high school and college. And I didn't think I was going to go to college, and I started getting into videography, and then I happened wow. to video, I happened to film a professor who was an expert on Dante. It just happened to be part of my job. I didn't even sign up for it, and I was blown away by what he was talking about. Which was? Which was Dante's Divine Comedy. Anyway, so the long story short is uh, college became for me less of a, I'm going to get my degree so I can do a particular task and more of, I already have a job and I just want to learn, but it led, it just let one thing led to another. And yeah. I had a couple professors who, who got their PhDs from the university of Dallas and they recommended me to the program. And here I am. So I was here last year getting my master's in philosophy. And, uh, now I'm in the IPS program this year in philosophy and Alexis joined me this year. And here we all are starting this endeavor. This yeah. podcast endeavor. Yeah. And the conversation continues. It does. So, all right. Well, let's get to the topic at this at this point which in the game. Which I feel like just touched upon. Which we've touched upon a couple of times, and we will we will further touch. We'll touch it more. <laughs> <laughs> There's a way to to cast this metaphor in in a non weird light, but I I don't know where to go now. You know. Help. It... <laughs> Literature people, help! <laughs> there's no saving you from that one. Oh, there's, that's there. <laughs> okay. The loss of the university. We're going to pick up the loss. Yeah. If such a thing can be done. Yes. So, why don't we have uh, Alexis, why don't you introduce Wendell Berry to us before we kind of delve into this essay? 
All right, uh, Wendell Berry was born in 1934. He is um, an author and a social critic, philosopher, as it were. Um, he is a native Kentuckian and has spent the last three decades farming with his family on a 75-acre farm in the Kentucky River region. He has written more than two dozen works of fiction, which are very well-acclaimed, and his take on the American economic and social life is tied inherently to a focus on locality and local community. So he believes that in strong familial social structures, in the interdependence on and respect for natural resources, and on living on the land or off the land as an economic structure. The, what we're going to be looking at today is a, the essay, The Loss of the University, is from his book Home Economics, which was published in 1987. Which is a collection of, yeah, essays. of essays. So this is one of, one of the essays in that collection. Mm-hmm. And this essay in particular, it, it deals not only with, with the graduate studies, but also undergraduate. Sure. And education all the way up to the university, because you cannot look at the university as separate from the educational structures which came before. It's, right. They affect each other, and your mm-hmm. secondary school, primary school, affects how one looks at the university. So he takes a look at all of them. Sure. Right. Yeah, and just the, the contemporary state of the liberal arts, mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. which is one that is very diminished and, I would say, heading towards extinction. Mm-hmm. And this kind of essay is one of, you know, a large group of all, all kinds of sort of apologies that lovers of the classics and of, you know, philosophy throughout the ages and theology and literature and the importance those things have, not only for their own sake, just because they're beautiful things, but for the structure of our minds and um, of our mm-hmm. societies. And I would like to add that, you know, this essay is not, there's no internal, like, inherent connection it has with our university. I've, I've never taught Wendell Berry um, in any of my classes, but he's a name that I hear around a lot, and I have read some of him. And, you know, we're not trying to uh, pass, you know, authorize Wendell Berry or something and say everything he says is true mm-hmm. and what we agree with. Mm-hmm. But it's, like Lisa said, this is, there are some ideas in there which are a good starting point to start talking about some of our motives for um, this kind of blog and also just the life that we are trying to live. Right. This kind of podcast. Podcast. I keep calling it a blog, man. Maybe yeah. you're a prophet. It's just... And one day it will be that. What is a podcast? It's a I weird word. a blog in audio form. Thank you. You know, guys, I... It's my first time being in front of uh, electronic technology. So <laughs> Wendell Berry would be proud. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Right. Yeah. Before we pick out ideas, perhaps we should say what the whole essay is about. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Right. Go ahead, Alexis. Great. Yes. Um, so this essay essentially is grappling with the problem of spe- specialization, um, which is found in modern academia, and, and looking at both what it means for a university when it tends towards each discipline being extraordinarily specialized, and also what that means for society, because he really looks at education, particularly in the university, as having a lasting and profound effect on um, the human person, and then um, by extension on the society that the human people um, belong to. And so he focuses especially on how disciplines no longer are part of a whole. They've just become their own parts that are detached from each other. And then he also looks at the importance of 
the liberal arts in what they do for the human person. So um, even though they're not scientifically provable, the truths that they have within them, like mathematics, there is still truth within literature and philosophy, um, and that those truths are worth examining as potential truths. Um, and that without doing that, the education has no meaning in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So he makes that distinction between learning about mm-hmm. and learning from. Right. Right. And he says that in studying the great books, in order for them to actually have a bearing on human life, to order, in order for them to actually cultivate, further cultivate in the soul the most human things, that we ought to learn from them. Right. And so that they're not to remain closed within the great books, but to ask the question, is this true? Is this good? And, and so that there is even a kind of philosophical foundation which precedes studying the great books. Uh, I'm not sure how that would look formally, but right. at least it, it's a kind, of, a kind of belief in the transcendent right. that, would, that would allow us to bring these books into uh, a larger metaphysical context. Right. And he also, though, doesn't just, it is not an apology for the great books per se, but even just for the discipline itself of literature, of philosophy. Not just like, because great books come, carries with it a certain idea of of a certain set of books, which he definitely mentions here. But it's not just that, just the fact that literature itself has something to say, Mm -hmm. even if it's not necessarily within the, within what is typically thought of as the great books. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. And so why is it that these, um, that these uh, topics and these um, sort of sources of wisdom are things that are systematically omitted and taken mm-hmm. out from the context of the uh, higher education mm-hmm. um, and all of the education. And I think we've mentioned specialization, and I think that can be, you have to be careful with that because it's, I don't think from reading, from reading his essay that it's specialization in of itself that is a problem. And what we mean by that is mm-hmm. that a person who is interested in a subject uh, become more invested in a very particular aspect of that subject and the language that is fit to talk about it. And of course, everyone easily recognizes the issue of that being that the more someone goes down there, the less relatable what they're doing is or communicable it is to other people. But that doesn't actually have to be mm-hmm. the case if universities are fulfilling their primary and first end. And I think this is the main thing, is that what unifies a university these days is, I I guess you would say in philosophy terms, that uh, isn't like a formal end or an intelligible goal, um, but more like physical walls (laughs) and the word university, which is one, or really what unifies is it as it is the basic idea that at this place called the university, you can find a bunch of stuff which can prepare you for a career. Whatever you want. Sure. Right? That it's kind of, he talks about the academic system now being up to the consumer. So that yes. it becomes, you go to this place, this collection of things, and you can just pick and choose whichever you want to get the end result that you desire. Right. But there's no, there's no end result that the university itself believes is a good that should be pursued. Right. It's just whatever the consumer or the... Um, right. Patron. Right. Beautiful. So the right. university has diversity the way a Walmart has diversity. Mm-hmm. It's for the sake of diversity, for the sake of giving the customer a plethora of options to choose from. But it's not the kind of university that 
that he would say is more classically understood as a unified diversity in the sense of, like you were saying, a, a telos and kind of end mm-hmm. an idea, or in the way that that Thomas Aquinas talks about it in his treatise on kingship, right? When he talks about, when he, he's giving his kind of argument as to why a human being is naturally social and naturally political. And so he says, he first, he first uh, begins this argument by saying we are naturally, by nature, rational. And then he says, well, because man by nature desires to know, and it is right. impossible for him to come to an understanding of all things, hmm. it is therefore necessary for him to live in a community right. so that one can study a little bit of medicine, one can study a little bit of law, and he come, you know, right. he's very Italian at that right. point. You know, a little bit of medicine, a little bit of law, right. a little bit of math, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and and then we come together in for this unified purpose of understanding the whole, right? So that so that parts the the unified diversity, right, is parts that come together as a whole, not just a conglomeration sure. of parts that aren't in any way talking to each other, that are not in any way uh, organically related right. to each other. And, and, of course, the goal of political society has a, uh, is a unified goal that brings together all, all, all parts and all individuals and, and different subgroups of a society. But it's not, it has a sort of analogical relationship to the goal of education, but it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Th- those are different. Um, right. The university is uh, similar in that it has to have this kind of unified vision and it has to be directed towards what I would say is a, a, it's a common good, right? I think uh, one thing I wanted to point out was that it's not that I would say somebody like Wendell Berry is saying, well, we need to move away from specialization so we can have a, a universal orientation, right? I think um, it's, it's much more deeper than that. It's that, in fact, we don't even properly understand the parts and engage them in a way that could actually fittingly be called edu- education if we don't see education as, a, as an actual, singular, intelligible thing. Uh, this is what education concerns, you know, being informed about what life is. Um, and th- that can affect trivial things and it affects the most important things. So this isn't just about, you know, we want to be able to uh, all wear the same t-shirt or something at school. Right, right. It's, we want... Uh, we're actually missing out on what the original idea of the u- the university and the very reason for it, for for its name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, right. and and to go back to your point about how Wendell Berry is not necessarily throwing out specialization entirely, he does. He kind of talks about a a kind of mean, a golden mean of specialization. So on on the one hand, if specialization is leading to uh, the kind of distancing of a man from his work, right? So that it becomes the, what's the distinction he makes between, is it a, that between knowing what you are doing and knowing the thing made, right? right? right. So he says that, so if specialization just leads to a knowledge of what you are doing rather than a knowledge of the whole or the pro- the production, then that's when specialization, he, he says, is improper. But he says proper specialization might allow for a narrowing in of your discipline 
so long as it doesn't divorce man from the production of the whole, right? So that if, you know, you're going to study literature, you're going to study this particular novel, right? But if you know what your end is, you realize that you, by studying this particular work, you are actually contributing to the whole production of education, right? right. The larger conversation, then that mm -hmm. kind of specialization is good and actually necessary because it's impossible for everyone right. to... There are parts of there education are, right, there and are there are parts, parts that not everyone has to go into to the same extent. Exactly. Um, and I would, I would clarify because I think, you know, when I first hear that distinction between doing and making, I go like... I don't think Aristotle would under understand it because doing is very actually this is a good thing. It's just but what what these guys mean by by it are different things, right? At the extreme, he wants you to imagine as the example of this kind of doing that is does isn't consistent with the 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 maker who takes responsibility for the thing that he creates and also has a, an interest in it in doing it well. So the opposite of that, this just mere doing is like you know, the conveyor belts, factory worker, would just be an extreme example that gets at it. You know, they, I don't know what they're building, let's say it's lawnmowers, right? And all this person is doing is they're putting on the front left tire as the, the axles of this thing come by on the conveyor belt. And they actually don't even think the word or care about lawns or lawnmowers or agriculture or, uh, you know, Household management, right. as uh, people talk about, right? Wendell Berry being, you know, this agricultural thinker, uh, in some ways, yeah. um, does put a lot of uh, stock in the problems that came from the industrial revolution, and so he makes this distinction between how the labor is related to um, his work, his products, um, pre-industrialization, industrial revolution, and post, and that ends up being a kind of good way of getting at what's going on with the university. That is why we treat everything in these small compartmentalized parts that don't talk to each other, right. which makes dysfunctional the university and irrelevant to most people. Right? Well, not just that, but he talks about responsibility, like you mentioned responsibility. Mm -hmm. Responsibility is a very important thing here um, because, like it or not, the choices that are made... Um, both by the individual and then by the, the community or the institution, have effects. And so mm -hmm. recognizing that, one has a responsibility to look at the product and to know what it is you're making. So he looks at the university that is overly specialized and that just allows the parts to be detached from each other um, and sees it as irresponsible because it right. allows people to come out of the university without actually knowing without actually knowing the effect that what they do has on their community. It's very right. it's very important to know the effect of the individual on the community mm -hmm. and then that the gift that is given in an education carries with it the responsibility of responsible formation of the individual. Right, absolutely. And yeah. then and that this is again what he would say improper specialization will lead to is that Instead of studying English literature and learning how to read well and how to write well, that people are studying, what what are the examples that he, he talks gives? about? Like instead of learning how to write, learn how to be, he talks about learning how to be a speech writer or a uh, writing right. for business. Right. Um, and that the problem with this is that if you learn how to write, you will come out and be able to write a speech or write a business letter. But if you learn how to be... If that's what you need to do. Right, if that's what you need to do. But that uh, we somehow have managed to come out with a lot of people trained in speech writing or business writing or what have you that can't write. That's anything. right. 
Right. He has a really good image where he says that uh, he's quoting from, uh, let's see, it says Samuel Johnson, um, who says that one has to grasp the trunk of the tree and you'll be able to shake off the branches. So if there's this one unified trunk, right, then different specializations can come off of that. So you have a, everyone is well-educated and then you have a well-educated person who then specializes in literature, but he still has the foundation that he can share, which helps with a common language. But he kind of characterizes universities today as more resembling a loose collection of locked branches waving about randomly in the air. So yeah. that you have all those branches there, but there's no trunk that unifies them. And mm-hmm. so they just can kind of do their own thing and there's no relation to each other. So it begs the question, why are you even taking right. the classes? Right. And the, exactly. Right. And, and you do see this play out, I think, in a really concrete way in the current state of our core curriculum. I think what, one thing that often tends to happen is that every discipline seeks to be represented in the core in a way that ends up further dividing the entire community because, you know, a communication class, someone who, you know, teaches public speaking doesn't realize that, oh, if so long as we have a, a class that teaches good writing and good reading and, and good literature, right, that, that students are being exposed to these kinds of things, that something like public speaking is a kind of technical skill, perhaps, that will come later. And that doesn't necessarily have to be represented in the core curriculum. But there, there, are, there are more fundamental things that need to be established as a foundation. Mm-hmm. And if the university, if everyone teaching there, all the disciplines, all the specializations realize that there is this common end, then not having perhaps your particular specialized field represented in the core won't be a threat to you, right? Because the end product is what we're concerned with, which is a good human being. And so long as we have that, then it's not absolutely necessary that all of the technical skill, it, that all the students be exposed to the technical skill uh, in a fundamental way. Okay, quick question though. You said, and Wendell Berry does also, and you, you repeated that he says the good human being is the product um, of the university. But that's a qualified statement because surely you don't mean, you know, I don't know, if you're a Christian, the kind of people who will go to heaven. Right. That's, is that what the university is trying to do? Make people morally good? Is that at school? Or what do we mean by good in this context? Right. Well, that that is a really, really good question. And it, it's something that I'm is still very confusing to me, to be honest, right? Because you, you do have uh, various universities or various colleges throughout the country that are very explicitly claiming to do one or two things, right? And they, uh, if you look at their, their mission statements, this is something that I was kind of working on this summer, you look at you know, someone like Thomas Aquinas College, they very clearly say we are trying to form the intellect. You look at something mm-hmm. like Wyoming mm-hmm. Catholic, and they say we are trying to form the imagination. Right. Uh, and, and you... Which are, have a relationship. Which right. Is usually the source of these differences, right? Is they're all picking on one aspect of the same thing. Right. And um, so it's exactly. And, and so it's different very aspects of the same thing. Sorry. Yeah. And, and it becomes, it's, it seems that it's becoming, uh, increasingly clear to me that, that you can't accomplish everything. And, and to say that, well, this education is going to, uh, that we are striving to, uh, form human beings in their entirety or, or to bring a human being like to his telos, 
perfectly mm-hmm. by teaching him great books. That well, that's that's a large claim, and and is it proper to say mm-hmm. that that is the end of education? Uh, mm-hmm. You have some, you know, another college like Hillsdale, which is you know teaching them to be uh, good citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have this more political end in mind, right? And so. You know, what, what is Bell and Abby's motto? Virtue and excellence, you know. Excellence like, and virtue. Excellence right. and virtue, excuse me. <laughs> Which is funny because, you know, that's kind of like saying excellence and excellence. I know. This is, uh, this is a constant you know. running joke at Bell and Abby. Right. Well, that's, and that's as a good... That hilarious little occurrence is a good way of getting it, I think, what this kind of good is. And I don't think Wendell Berry means exactly what Aristotle means, but I think he means something more like it, that the... The goodness of the human being is not some sort of divinely conceited moral state of, of the person in terms of whether he does nice things or evil things to people, but it has to do with whether he is fulfilling his nature virtuously, with arete, with excellence, d- doing it well to to high degree. The, I think, historically validated contention is that education, especially the education of adults and the continuing throughout one's life, is essential for the, uh, as I think I said before, the structure of our society. I mean, I think about something like our dependence on, on law, you know, here in the United States, at least. And this is not, this isn't a religious thing. This is a constitutional thing. Um, but to believe in not having some authority and sway over you, I think, requires you to uh, be devoted to the intellect in some serious way. That our knowledge of the truth is necessary for us to do what is right. Now, we're talking about law, so this is happens to be about mor- morals to some extent. But it's not just about that. It's also about being fulfilled, mm-hmm. being happy, living a fitting life, living a life of dignity. To gain excellence um, in in the soul through education, through like pedagogical formation, is to increase your capacity to enjoy the dis- the, the distinctly human enjoyments. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. and toward the end of the essay, he does really talk about the necessity for education to lend itself to to the things that they're pointing to. So that we don't stay trapped within within the books or see see studying as a kind of end to itself, that we don't dichotomize it so starkly from reality, but that we see the studying of these things as lending themselves to action, and and so he sees the university as cultivating what is most natural, uh, through through the reading of books, right? That is the means, and conversation, right? And then lending itself to to the further question as to what is this pointing to? As a kind of sign, he talks about this with language, right? And that's something we might talk about at some point. But uh, Alexis, you wanted to oh, I was just, jump in there. Yeah, he. I think that the reason he's so so interested in this question of education is because that which is in the books, um, that we read in the books, that's what which we study that has come from the past, confirms what is human in us? And that's like the, that's the emphasis he makes. He says that the inescapable purpose of education must be to preserve and pass on the essential human means, the thoughts and words and works and ways and standards and hopes without which we are not human. 
To preserve these things and to pass them on is to prepare students for life. And so the reason education is so entirely vital is not because people wrote great books and like we owe it to them to read them. Um, it's because there is something about the human person that is not satisfied with just the food on the table and the paycheck um, yeah. in the mail. There's something about the human person, one might even say the person's soul, which is not fully developed, is not human without recognizing that and without being developed. And so that, he thinks, is, the, is why education is important and what education ultimately has to be directed towards and how, how that works out is a little bit more complicated. Of course. But right. And not resolved. Not resolved. Officially. Yeah. And, and, and not supposed to be the kind of thing. It's an active right. engagement. That's another thing we have to have humility. Humility is entirely important um, because humility is what allows the student and the teacher to both say we can still learn something and allows us to come here and right. to speak about these things even though my name is not Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and magnanimity in, in the sense that he was talking about that universities need to recognize that we have something to give you, right? You're not coming to us to be selective and to choose your own education, but that universities need to be bold in saying that, uh, and and he says, right, the the elderly, the the wise among us need to decide what is proper to give the student, what constitutes a good education. Uh, and there's there's a great magnanimity involved in that to recognize that yes this is a good education I know it, not to shy away from that, in the kind of small mindedness right, not to be foolish in in posing too much right because Wendell Berry also does say that there should be a certain amount of freedom right so he really does like the model of having a core curriculum for the first two years and then having mm-hmm. some area in which the student can have of course a choice within within certain limitations, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is, right, the kind of, the way that Aristotle sets it up, mag- magnanimity is in the mean, and then foolishness right. uh, is the extreme, and right. small-mindedness is the deficiency. So small-mindedness being this idea that someone is great, but doesn't think they are great, and then foolishness being th- someone thinking that they are great, and they happen to be not great. Right. Magnanimity is saying, I am great, <laughs> and I know it, right? And that the university needs to come out boldly and say, we have something to teach you. And that you come you come to us in order to receive an education, not That's in right. order to pick right. one. As opposed to this situation where universities are really career centers. One problem we have is that people think academics are about academics. That is to say, they view it as specialized. Who's interested in academics? Well, academics. And in, bi- in biology? Well, the biologists, right? This is, this is a problem because it's academics who are supposed to be learning about truth and truth is supposed to be informing us about life or so claims anyone who thinks there's value to wisdom, right? That, and that's just like you said. It's not, oh, well, I know what I want to do with my life, so I'm going to go to this school so they can give me this piece of paper so I can go to this other institution and do well there. Well, really what you should be doing is you're doing apprenticeship. You shouldn't be going. This is what Wendell Berry, this is kind of what he emphasizes. Like, probably this is, this sounds more appropriate that you should find someone who does that kind of job because you're just saying you want, you want a job, but you don't want to get educated, right? Mm-hmm. And the people who say that they're doing that and letting you take that path are lying to you, mm-hmm. right? Because if these institutions are actually educating us in a deep way, there's a good chance they're going to change your mind about mm-hmm. what the important things are 
in life and um, how to go about them and how to fulfill your, your unique potentiality. Not that it won't, won't be the same as what you thought coming in. It certainly won't be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Or else you shouldn't go. You're just a genius. You don't need to be educated. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I was taking the floor. We need a buzzer or a bell. Or no, no, no. That was, all, that was very good. Uh, don't vote me off the island. I was going to say one more thing before, unless you all had something else to say, but I wanted to just touch really quickly on one thing before we go to the Republic passage, which was just this idea of language, uh, because that runs throughout the work, mm. throughout this essay. And Wendell Berry is constantly concerned with this kind of Good. division of language, this over-specialized right. language, That's which so accompanies uh, right. this over-specialized right. uh, problem in academia. And mm-hmm. so, and and this is something that I've encountered several times where I'm, I'm having a conversation with someone in academia and they kind of, they stop themselves and, and will say, oh, I, I'm struggling with the vocabulary or I, if, if only you understood, you know, the terms you know, this is legitimately something that has, uh, it, it almost cuts off conversation, right? Because we have our particularized jargon and terms which legitimize our field and our understanding right. in a way that shuts off conversation between mm-hmm. disciplines. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Peterson critiques this kind of thing all the time in, in academia. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, if you haven't heard of him, <laughs> well, there's there's no hope. No, that one one uh, example he gave that I thought was so interesting. Who, Barry or, or Peterson? In, oh, Peterson. Oh. He that, uses a... He's that Canadian guy. Yeah, that Canadian psychologist. They have schools there too, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. I'm he, Canadian, by the way. That's <laughs> true. Anyways, uh, Jordan Peterson, he gives this one example. Uh, there was this study done by some biologists. They, they were trying to differentiate zebras from each other. And they went out to this safari. <laughs> Is that what you would... Plain. African plain. <laughs> this, this African plain. And they, uh, every time they try to study the zebra, they forgot which zebra they were studying because they they, they were all so similar and their, their stripes just uh, made them kind of blend in with each other so that it became very difficult to differentiate them. And so what they started to do was... Tag them. Splash. Bag yes. them, tag them. Yeah, exactly. Don't bag them, just tag them. Okay. <laughs> they would splash. Nonviolent tagging. Right, so of going. course. Uh-huh. They would be uh, painted with red paint, just splattered. <laughs> and... And what ended up happening was that every time they did this, they would kind of move away from the the zebra pack, and all of a sudden, that zebra would be singled out by uh, some predator. And the lion would would completely just go after the one that was spattered. They must have felt bad. Yeah. And so they they tried this a couple of times, and it kept on happening. And so Jordan Peterson... (laughs) It's he, a paradox. We lose the zebra. We we mark out to it, study precisely. <laughs> and so Jordan Peterson used this example as a kind of metaphor of the problem within academia and language. So that once uh, a certain discipline creates their own jargon, they feel a kind of security within the pack, and they're able to hide. And as as soon as someone kind of questions their discipline or or their particular language, uh, they become isolated. And they, they can no longer justify them, themselves or their disciplines, and they become a target in a way, right? So that if, if you can hide within your jargon, if you can hide within your specialized right. language, then you're safe. That's right. The, right. The problem, especially with a specialized language, is the it, it stems from whether or not you think that each discipline has any responsibility towards the rest of humanity, right? Mm-hmm. So that if there's anything good that comes from... Uh, biology or from psychology or from 
um, literature, that that has to be something that's communicable to the rest of humanity. To right. some extent, right? Um, and so that if it's something that only can be referenced um, within the discipline, and that only people within the discipline can understand, then it just, it, there's no, there's no uh, accountability even. There's no ability to communicate to the rest of, of, of yeah. man. And yeah, and like, let's pick a concrete problem that I think that this could, you know, sort of justify why this is actually so very relevant, you know, is something like, let's take um, technology, right, which would be, you know, I, this would be some kind of in the sciences, computer science, you can, you, um, you can study this, obviously, university and higher institutions. Then you have something like ethics and philosophy, which ask questions about uh, not what can we do with these computers, right, um, but what should we do? Right. If it's going to be an ethics class that discusses, you know, technology, which is a huge thing in philosophy, you know. So what happens, though, if the only people that know about ethics and, you know, ethics and technology are the are the philosophy kids who like technology, who took that ethics course. And the only people who know about computers, right, are the people who took computer science. And it's worse than them, you know, not both knowing about it. Worse than that, they can't even start to do it because they can't understand each other. Yeah. Right. Well, right. To make your concrete example even more uh, concrete. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, says the politics. Right, right. For a philosophy person, that was real, that was real concrete, but, you know. It's, uh, so you have the classic trolley problem, right? Which, you know, to... Uh, Two different trolleys. paths. Those technology trolleys, yeah, man. Right, well, even... That was state-of-the-art stuff. <laughs> but, but to bring it to the uh, mm-hmm. 21st century... Yeah. Um, the, the trolley problem is now a problem that has to be thought of when when programming automized cars. Yeah, right? that became that, a living issue. Right, with, not where just it's not just you have to make the decision, okay, when the, if there's someone in the road, do, do I protect myself or do I protect the person in the right. road? Now your car is going to be making that decision for you. And the people who are programming the cars right. had better well have some kind of understanding yeah. of what the ethics are there because yeah. they're making an ethical calculation in the program. Right, and for the record, the, the math won't solve itself there. Right, and so right. The, this kind of further polarization of, of disciplines uh, begins with a premise that I think Wendell Berry rejects, which is to say that you can even separate facts and values, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and that somehow the, these things, these two things are always talking to each other. Right, so there is this, this is an important concept mm-hmm. we have to bring in, is that there is this very uh, respectable appearing phenomenon that is actually this kind of farce and a cover-up for the lack of a soul that a university has. And what that is, is, you know, this idea of objectivity. Personally, I think objectivity as a concept in of itself is is gold. I mean, it, it, you know, we have to, philosophers define their terms, right? But what Wendell Berry is talking about, he's not talking about the idea that there is truths that don't care about our feelings, right? Um, Where have I heard that before? Uh, right, which is, that is, you know, uh, something is... Um, we love you, Ben! Four plus four uh, is not a matter of, you know, how I'm feeling that day, right? And it's 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 not something that's going to change with experience and so forth. But he's not talking, that's not the problem. What he's talking about is this kind of supposed stance of objectivity being that as a condition for studying it legitimately, you have to detach yourself from the possibility of it affecting you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for what reason? No good one. 
And this is why this is a farce. And I think we could talk about where does this come from? Why does this even sound right? Well, a lot of reasons think it's like scientism, right? People tend to think they overdo this objectivity thing. That's to say, they think because it's good in science that it's what we should expect in every other topic, you know, like in philosophy. And so when they can't get it, they say, oh, either let's not do it at all. It's bullshit because, you know, we can't answer it like four plus four equals eight. Therefore, it's not worth thinking about. Clearly not true. Right. And I would say, if you, if you think that's true, then why do you care about the Constitution and think it's an intelligent idea um, or anything? It's because it's not resting on a math problem. <laughs> Anyhow, not to get on the political soapbox here or I'm not that's even my a, job. Yeah, huh? that's my job. Yeah, it's your job. You know, I need to be... even your people with your specialized language. <laughs> right. All that to say that it there is this uh, certain idea that's sort of crept into the universities that to be objective is really not to believe anything and from the outset decide that what university is about is crystallized knowledge that is like getting a list of facts down right mm -hmm. so sure you might study uh shakespeare shakespeare or the upanishads or the bible or the origin of the species but first what you'll do is you'll say oh well we already know what place this has in history um this is back when people believed uh you know in god but since and the Enlightenment happened, we don't anymore, so um, but maybe there's a way we could garner some value from it, right? But the issue is it's not honest, and, and not because it's not telling you, hey, no, you need to believe in God to read this, no, because it's not letting you have an interaction with the text and see uh, what you think or what your reasonings right. make you do in the confrontation with that work. And that's why, by the way, when we, talk, we mentioned great text programs, why are we... Why do we talk about great texts and great books? The interesting thing is there's no, we don't talk about philosophy books or literature books, right? We don't specify. We don't specialize because that's, that's the point. We believe there's something to human wisdom. And it's, if, if there's anything to science, it's, it's crept into there. And if there's anything to living economically in a smart way, there's something to that. I don't know anything about that. That's why I don't know the term for it. <laughs> um, Please donate me money. No. Um, but, uh, right, we, we believe that there's something unified to truth, right? And, and a way to talk about it all together, uh, not absolutely for every single person, but in a way that is, um, you know, brings up the society and brings mm -hmm. up the, the individual um, towards a common view. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Do you know who else completely agrees with that? Are you going to say Plato? Plato also probably completely agrees with that. Just, Whoa. Just an idea. Who's that guy? Throw, throwing that out there. I've heard of Peterson, but like Plato? <laughs> what? I, I think that we will continue this conversation on Wendell Berry uh, throughout other podcasts as... Throughout our life. Throughout our life. Wendell throughout Berry. reality and encountering the thing yeah. itself. But read Plato. You, you can read Berry later. Yeah, <laughs> but why don't we go ahead and turn now just quickly to the passage in the Republic, which inspired the name of this podcast, and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up with with this passage and carry on the conversation in in another podcast. Yes, ma'am. All right. So the passage that we're going to be looking at is from Book Seven of the Republic by Plato. By Plato. Line, let's see, this is 536A through around D. And uh, book book seven is 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 the book which we receive our our image of the cave. 
And at this point in the conversation between Glaucon and Socrates, they are discussing the Guardian's education. And Socrates is kind of critiquing the Guardians in, in a way that Wendell Berry was critiquing the university, saying that the Guardians are going to have a seriously maimed soul if they hate learning and if they over-specialize, you might say, in being lovers of gymnastics and the hunt. Lovers of all the labor done by the body, he says, and not lovers of learning. And so... To fix this problem, he says, well, let's, let's instill philosophy into the soul. Let's instill uh, wisdom and education and learning. And justice herself, she, uh, Socrates says, will not blame us in doing so. So we're just going to read this passage really quick and kind of talk about why it or, or how it provided us with the title. And then we'll, we'll close it up. So we'll have... Alex, would you like to be Socrates over here and Alexis Glaucon? <clears throat> so, I said, we must take good care of all such things, since if we bring men straight of limb and understanding to so important a study and so important a training and educate them, justice herself will not blame us, and we shall save the city and the regime. Well, in bringing men of another sort to it, we shall do exactly the opposite, and also pour even more ridicule over philosophy. That, he said, would indeed be shameful. Most certainly, Glaucon. But I seem to have been somewhat ridiculously affected just now. How's that? I forgot that we were playing, playing, we were, we were just playing, and spoke rather intensely. For, as I was talking, I looked at philosophy, and seeing her undeservingly spattered with mud, I seemed to have been vexed, and said what I had to say too seriously, as though my spiritedness were aroused against those who are responsible. And we will end that excerpt reading there. This is the passage which we derived our title from, Philosophy spattered with mud, right? And our title being, of course, Mud Spattered Philosophy. And the idea here is that taking philosophy too seriously does damage to philosophy, right? And so on one hand, we have Socrates wanting to instill certain uh, virtues of learning and education into the souls of the guardians, right? Uh, on the other hand, we have guardians that are over-specialized, but at the end of this pas passage here, we really see both alternatives as being somehow insufficient, that there's a kind of freedom that's necessary, a kind of playfulness that's necessary as a foundation in order to be educated, in order to learn, right? And we have that etymological connection there between, is it uh, paideia in the Greek? That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, right, so... Right, so school and play, education Right, and education play. and play, mm -hmm. having this very uh, close linguistic kind of uh, expression here. And so on one hand... As opposed to spudeo, uh, I think it is in the Greek. Which is, know, seriousness. which is seriousness. Right. right. And so seeing philosophy spattered with mud, seeing academia spattered with mud, uh, this podcast here is our attempt to salvage academic thought from too much seriousness. And whether we succeed in that attempt or not is to be determined. Could you uh, say a little bit of what it actually means to be too serious? Yeah, what's the problem with being serious? What does it mean to Aristotle be playful says in education? That is, that is a good question, right? And so I think in this passage here, 
there that the seriousness of Socrates, which overwhelms him, right, and and produces this kind of thumos, which which he says uh, overtakes him, and 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 then he spatters philosophy with mud because of that, is is a kind of uh, making too concrete this ideal, it, uh, kind of forcing the ideal, or uh, how would you say it? What about the possibility that what you're doing at university is learning how to enjoy uh, what it is to be human, right? Learning how to supplement your wonder with accuracy, you know, getting at uh, this this thing that not only fulfills the highest in man, but holds together even the core mm-hmm. um, of, you know, a whole society, um, especially one like ours. Right. Then we should expect that uh, philosophy is both not the most serious thing, because the truth, what it's always valuable, but it isn't always serious, right? Mm-hmm. There is something important to what the levity of being. Um, isn't it a good thing that we enjoy fully what we're doing uh, most of the time rather than be doing what we're doing for some other thing we right. want to be doing? And the, and the enjoyment of what we're doing, I think, does indicate to a certain extent the kind of freedom we have in doing it. That's right. Right. And a kind of excellence in doing it. Right. Right. So that excellence without freedom, without enjoyment, is not quite there yet. In short, I would say, if you don't find out that things like studying philosophy or, uh, you know, engaging the highest in man, whatever that is, learning an instrument, uh, you you end up actually, like, joining something like a, one of those leagues that dress up like, you know, uh, like, like hobbits and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, people, you know, in, like, smocks, uh, right. uh, running around in elves, uh, like, <laughs> trying to be called? something that, Cosplay. Cosplay. that they're not. And trying to get a break from all that labor that the world and the university forces on you. Well, what if it's a possibility that we can have both? Right. We, can pl- we can enjoy as if, like, play the most important things. Right. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't, Wouldn't it, be? it be something? Yeah, I believe in that. I think I think and that is part the key of the podcast is to salvaging academic thought. There we go. There we go. All right, we'll end it there. Until next time, thanks for listening. Consider supporting Mud Spattered Philosophy in our effort to promote the great ideas of Western civilization. For more information, you can visit the Mud Spattered Philosophy Facebook page. Shoot us an email at mudspatteredphilosophy at gmail.com or visit our website at mudspatteredphilosophy.weebly.com. Thanks for tuning in.